But with that, we do have a Devo for you from one of my favorite people, and that's Rob. Uh, Rob's the guy that makes this entire study work and happen and function. If he weren't still here, I don't know what would happen. I I would probably show up on Thursdays instead of Tuesdays. Um, So I encourage you, though, not only is Rob great at making this study work, but he's a great influence in my life, just constantly encouraging and exhorting me personally. And so I ask you, beg you, please, give your, not only your applause up, but your hearts and your ears up to what Rob would have to say. Amen? How you guys doing? Um, I'm going to be in Romans 5 today. And um, yeah, as you turn there, um, would you just pray with me? Father, I just thank you so much. I just thank you that you would care for us, Lord, that you would look out for us, that you would be a God that would take his time to really know what's going on in our lives, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me today, Lord, that not one word out of my mouth would be my own, Lord, but they would all be yours. And Lord, I pray that um, they would just remember what you have to say and not what I have to say, Lord. I thank you, Lord, and I love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to be talking about scripture memorization. Um, I know it doesn't really have to do with the text that you're looking at, but I'll get to that. Um, why, why, why would we memorize scripture? Well, the reason to memorize scripture, uh, the Bible says in Psalms, Psalm 119, is your word I have hidden in my heart, O Lord, so that it may not sin against you. Uh, one of the reasons to memorize scripture is so that you don't sin against God. Um, in Matthew 4, Jesus is being tempted by the devil. And what did he use to drive off the, the devil? He used, he used scripture. He quoted scripture at the devil. Um, that is our greatest tool against sin is, is um, scripture memorization. Having a scripture on our heart always ready to say, um, not only to drive off the enemy, but to change where our mindset is. Um, I guarantee you start quoting scripture, your mind's going to go directly where it needs to be and away from whatever sin um, is on your mind. Another reason is to encourage others and to encourage yourself. Um, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It is to correct us when we are doing wrong and to teach us to do what is right. God uses us to prepare, uses it to prepare and equip his people to do good works. Um, you can use scripture to do pretty much everything else. Uh, this is the word of God. It has every kind of instruction for everything that's going on in your life. Um, it has an answer for whatever is going on. Um, this is God's word. But there's one more, one more thing that you can use it for uh, that is, for me, has greatly affected my life, is that um, to encourage others, you have to be able to encourage yourself. Um, 
And to encourage yourself, you have to preach to yourself. And what does that look like? Well, it just looks like somebody's standing there preaching to you, but you're doing it to yourself. Um, But not only that, the more and more you say it, um, the more and more you understand it. And the more and more it becomes part of you. Um, And you really understand the scripture that you're saying. You're not just saying it to... Um, just to say words over and over again. It, there's great power in hearing yourself say the word of God. Uh, there's a lot of power in somebody preaching to you and encouraging you, but to hear your own voice, at least for me, becomes a different kind of reality. Um, I now have to say what, I have to do what I'm saying. Um, I have to believe what I'm saying. Otherwise, I'm just lying to myself, and what's the point of that? Um, but I want to share with you the scripture that really made this um, come alive in my, in my heart, um, and I'm going to quote it. I'm supposed to have it memorized. So, Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, therefore, we have been justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and have, and have access into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But that's not all. We can glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Now, what does that scripture mean? Well, the first, the first verse, we have been justified by faith and have peace with God. We have been justified. Justified means we've been made righteous. Um, We've been made righteous. We are now pure before God. Um, And we have peace with God. We were once at war with God. We were at odds with God. But because now we have been made righteous, we have peace with God. In the next verse, uh, verse number two, we have access into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We, have, we now have access to God. Do you realize what a big deal access to God is? In the Old Testament, they had to do a bunch of rituals. Um, they had to kill animals. And they didn't even get to go in front of it. The, the pastor, or whatever they called him, was the one who, who got to go in front of God. But now, we just get to go, Father? And he's there. He's ready. He stops everything for you. And, it, and there's a verse, I don't know the verse, but it says that God kneels down to hear what you have to say. He gets real close. Um, he's not a father that you're talking to and he's watching TV or reading the paper or eating dinner. He stops. He stops and he listens. Um, and it's because of Jesus we have that. Um, so those three things, those three things are just, are great things. We get... To be made righteous, we get to have access, um, we get to have peace. Those are, those are enough. But I, just, I love how Paul says in the next verse, he says, that's not all. Um, it reminds me of like an infomercial where uh, they're telling you, you get this, this, and this, and then they go, but that's not all. Um, in my mind, that's how I see Paul saying it. That's not all. Uh, you get the glory in tribulation. The rest of the world suffers in their tribulation. They have nowhere to turn. Um, they, turn to, they turn to drinking and alcohol or whatever else. Um, 
But because we have those three things, we can glory in tribulation. Not only do we get the glory in tribulation, but tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance is what is one of the things that's going to get us to that day where we step into God's presence and he says, good job, good and faithful servant. Perseverance is what's going to get us there. Um, and then it says perseverance uh, produces character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. God does not disappoint. Um, there's a... Those those four things are probably the greatest things we could ever have. Um, once we really understand those four things, once we really have preached that to ourselves enough, that we, we've said it enough, that we've heard it enough, um, nothing else really matters. There's a there's a song that's popular right now by David by uh, David Crowder called "He Loves Us," and there's a line that says. When all of a sudden I am aware these afflictions are eclipsed by glory. Um, for me, when I, I really understand what God has really given me, nothing, nothing else matters. Um, if you're suffering in something right now, something didn't go the way you want it to go, um, it doesn't seem like God is providing in a certain way. It doesn't, maybe you just are bummed and you don't even know why. But if you really look at what you already have, you've been given righteousness, you've been given peace, you've been given access, and you get the glory and tribulation. Um, when I hear that, that line of the song of suddenly I'm aware of these, how does it go? Suddenly, I'm I'm aware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. When it's when he's saying that it's eclipsed, it means that God's glory is so bright that his afflictions don't even matter anymore. They're blocked out by the glory. And when you really understand God's glory, um, everything else is eclipsed. It's in the darkness. It's blocked out. It doesn't matter. Um, for me, these verses have really put me in that place of um, my afflictions are eclipsed. Um, every every verse in the Bible should be able to do that for you. Every verse has some something to do with your life. There's something for everything going on in your life. I would challenge you to to take a verse, apply it to what's going on, and repeat it over and over until it becomes part of you. Preach it to yourself. Preach it to others. My closest friends have heard me say these five verses probably a million times. Um, because they have impacted me so much. They're on the tip of my lips. Tip of my tongue always. Um, but that's it. Would you allow me to pray for you? And um, Tyler can come up. Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that there is a v something for us for every situation going on in our lives, Lord. I thank you for even giving us the word, Lord. I thank you that we have this this book in our hand, Lord, this book of your words that you wrote. 
And Lord, I just thank you for righteousness and access and peace and that I get to glory in tribulation, Lord. Such great things, Lord. You just, you're such a great father and I don't even understand um, why you would take time with a man like me, Lord. But Lord, I pray that you would bless these. Lord, I pray that you would be with them in every situation of their lives. Lord, I pray that you would be close to them. And Lord, I just pray that you would be with Tyler as he comes to share the word. Lord, I pray that you would speak through him, Lord. I thank you, Lord, and I love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rob. Well, you guessed it. We're continuing our study through the book of Genesis, which, of course, is the book of beginnings. You guys are getting really good at knowing when I... When I'm like looking for the the response, I guess my hand movements have like, they're all the same now, but, uh, we're actually going back a chapter. We would be in chapter 20 or in chapter 30, uh, today, but we're going to hop back a chapter to 29. So if you want to flip over there, that'd be great. But before we get into that, I just wanted to share something with you. Um, just something that the Lord's really laid on my heart and is working in me. And, uh, it's the need for transparency. It's one of those things where when you work for a church, when you work in ministry, for some reason, either because of our culture or because of the nature of the job or because of our human nature, one of the three, there's this feeling that you can't really be yourself or you can't really be honest or you can't really be open about who you really are for fear of judgment. And I think that one of the contributing factors is that So often we put pastors on pedestals, right? So when a pastor does something that is not holy, you know, we we cry out against them, that, that terrible, terrible, terrible person. When in reality, all they ever were was just a a human, just like us, fallen in nature and uh and striving for grace. And I think that when we put people on pedestals like this, it causes this awkward feeling for them that they can't really be honest they can't really be open and most importantly they can't be transparent about themselves and they start to guard and they start to hide things well if anyone ever knew about this about me um you know they'd never come to my church anymore uh i would be forced to resign um things like this fears fears of judgment flood into the into these pastors minds and so what it causes and not just pastors but really any christian leader i think this mentality happens to some degree and so what happens is, is all of these hey bottom line is failures and fall like trips and falls and all these struggles get internalized and never talked about never dealt with and they just continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and what ends up happening we know is uh, a scandal breaks out and it, it comes out that a pastor has committed adultery uh, on his wife with the church secretary. All because all along he could never be honest and open about the fact that he struggled with lust with either godly Christian men around him or to some extent with his congregation. I was having uh I was having coffee with a friend of mine just the other day. His name's Sean Durham. Really sweet brother. 
And we were talking about this and how God was really working in both of our lives and really showing us the importance and the need for transparency and how beautiful transparency really is and how people ultimately are drawn to transparent people. You love the person that just tells it like it is, right? Even if it's bad, for some reason, when they just tell it like it is, you love that person and you want to be around them because they're honest. They're real. They're, they just speak truth no matter how painful or how uncomfortable it may be. One of those people uh, in my life is a uh, coworker of mine. His name's Aaron Adami. And uh, he's, a, he's gotten the nickname uh, by Josh Thompson and some of, the, some of the other brothers as being the prophet. You know, because it's like everyone will, you know, be eating at some place. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. And Aaron will just be quiet most of the time. And, and when it gets quiet and everybody's done talking, Aaron will just be like, this is the worst thing I've ever eaten. You know, and it's just like when Aaron speaks, it's just truth. It's raw. It's blunt. It's, it's just truth. And working with a guy like that is sometimes a little bit uncomfortable, you know, because when he tells you something, man, it's raw. It's so raw. Like, you're an idiot. Why would you do that? And it's just like, oh. But ultimately, I love, love, as, as uncomfortable as it is, I love being called out by Aaron because I know that it's just truth. It's just raw. It's just honest. Nobody likes to hang out around people who are fake, right? We don't like fake people. And so I guess my whole point in, in bringing this up and talking about this is just, it's twofold, the reason why I'm bringing it up. The first one is to just share with you what God's doing in my life and what he's teaching me, is that I need to be transparent. I need to be honest, and I need to be open. Because, number one, that's what we're all looking for. That's what we all really want, is transparency and honesty. Number two is that's how Jesus did it. That's how Jesus did it. He was just honest. He just spoke truth, not condemning, not judging, not with an attitude or a, a snide, uh, I guess, way of saying it, but he just spoke the truth. You know, like the woman at the well. He comes up to the woman at the well and he just says, yeah, that's right, you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. You know, when I read that, I, I don't see Jesus being like, yeah, that's right. You know, you, you've had five husbands, okay? You little hussy. That's not how Jesus did it. He just spoke truth. He was just honest. and He was just transparent. When people asked things of him, he was just honest. He, was, he just spoke truth. And family, that's how we need to be as well. That's how we need to be. Look, Reality, like being real and being honest and being transparent, is never a substitute for repentance, for true repentance. It's not okay to just be honest about your sin and to never do anything about it. But in order to do anything about sin and failure and compromise, we need to at least first be honest with ourselves about it, honest with God about it, and honest with one another about it. I'm not saying that we each need to come behind this microphone and like confess all of our sin to the whole family. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, that's not biblical. It's not wise. It's not healthy. But with the people in your life that you love and are dear, dear to and that they're dear to you, be honest. Be transparent. Be yourself. Don't 
wear a mask. Don't wear a front because here, here's the problem with that. When you're not honest about what's going on in your life, those people can't possibly pray for you like you need to be prayed for and love on you like you need to be loved on. Encourage and exhort you like you need to be encouraged and exhorted and call you out when necessary. They can't do it. You know, Galatians 6 tells us to, first of all, that if anyone is, is caught in sin, that you who are spiritual should restore such a man in a spirit of gentleness, watching out lest you too be tempted. And then it goes on to say, bear one another's burdens, and in doing so you fulfill the law of Christ. Family, how can we bear one another's burdens if we don't know what they are? If we're not honest about them, if we're not transparent with one another about them. Don't get me wrong. Transparency is very difficult because it it involves getting over the fear of judgment because that's ultimately the real reason why any of us are fake or masked. It's because we're afraid that people judge us if they saw who we really are and if they saw what we really struggled with. But I challenge you, family, I encourage you, as God is teaching me to be transparent, as he's teaching me to be honest and open about my weaknesses, my failures, as I look to to Paul, who says that he boasts all the more in his weakness, boasts in his weakness. Why? Because Christ's strength is made perfect in his weakness. Family, I'm... Again, I'm not saying that we need to all get before a microphone or or get on the rooftops with a megaphone and, and shout to the world all the things that we've done. But I promise you this. As it promises in Scripture that the things that we've done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops in heaven, that's not something I'm afraid of. It's something I look forward to. I can't wait for the day when I don't have to worry about any condemnation or negative feelings whatsoever and that in heaven all the things I've done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops I can't wait for that day because I'm sure you know if you've ever harbored anything if you've ever kept anything in and internalized it it's it's terrible it's painful there's no healing that happens in that area and there's just more and more and more decay and pain and terrible memories, and more opportunity for the enemy to use it against us. I long for the day that the things that I've done in secret be shouted from the rooftops in heaven. And so I'm going to live my life like that. Not afraid of that day, but looking forward to that day. And as much as I can be with you, and more importantly with the close brothers in my life that God has given me, I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be raw. And I'm just going to speak truth. Not sugarcoating anything. Not candy coating it. Making it seem better than it is. But just transparent truth. I encourage you to do the same. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. I just flipped to 2 Kings. I was way past it. If, like me, you just had a brain fart, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, not the eighth. 
Genesis. Genesis chapter 29. Before we get into it, though, I think it's important that we go back a little bit and we cover some of the things that we missed, uh, just in case you haven't been reading along. Um, After Sarah died, after Sarah died, uh, we have Isaac uh, needs to get married. When Sarah, his mom, died, he was about 37 years old. And so Abraham sends his servant to go get a wife for him, comes back with Rebecca. It's going to be important. It's going to come back into the story a little bit later on. But after that, Abraham ends up dying, and uh, Esau and Jacob come into the picture. Esau and Jacob were Isaac and Rebekah's two kids. They were twins. But Esau was born first. Esau was like, well, it says that he was really red and really hairy. Even from birth, he sort of came out looking like a Wookiee. That's just how it is. For the like 10 people in here who are Star Wars fans, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Everybody else is just like, what's a Wookiee? Wookiee is Chewbacca from, uh, from Star Wars. Chewbacca. That's Esau. Esau the Wookiee. Um, but he was just an extremely hairy guy, real man's man. And Jacob comes out, he was named Jacob, which means heel catcher because he was literally holding on to Esau's heel as he comes out of the womb. Sort of in a sense, even from birth, always trying to pull Esau back and get himself first. You see? And so what happens is, is since Esau was technically born first, he had the birthright, meaning he was supposed to get the majority of all of dad's estate, title, prestige, so on and so forth, the birthright. Jacob would have gotten something out of it, but Esau would have gotten literally double what Jacob had gotten. Jacob has a problem with that, though. He doesn't like that. And so what do he and his mom decide to do? Once again, we have, we have scheming. God had promised that Jacob would be over Esau, that he would end up, though he was the younger, that he would end up being God's chosen of the two brothers. And, uh, and so there was a promise there. But as we've learned time and time again through the book of Genesis, when we take our eyes off God's promise and come up with our own plans, we only end up with problems. Yeah. And so Jacob and his mom decide to scheme up a plan to fool dad into giving away the birthright. And uh, so that's what they do. Whole controversial controversy and debacle there and Esau gets ticked he gets robbed out of his birthright and he starts hunting his little brother down ready to kill him and uh, so Jacob takes off running mom says boy you better get gone and uh, so he takes off then we take a look at uh, chapter 28 Uh, Jacob is sent to uh Rebecca's brother, Laban. Hey, go to my brother's house, Laban's house. Go check it out. Hide out there for a while, and uh, who knows? Maybe you'll maybe you'll get a wife out there too. While he's gone, Esau marries an Ishmaelite woman. Uh, just what happens. Uh, you can read about it if you want. Jacob, though, on the road to uh, on the road to Laban's uh, place, he has a dream. Very important dream in scripture. And rather than explaining it to you, I thought we'd just really quickly read through it. 
So if you wouldn't mind in chapter 28, verse 10, we're just going to read right through it, okay? Chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Just side note, I just want to randomly pause and say, rocks don't make good pillows, but whatever. Verse 12, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and and to your offspring. So anytime we see that, real quick, anytime we see the land I'll give to you and your offspring, this means that this is uh, one of our patriarchs. Patriarch is like forefather, basically. And so far of the patriarchs, which are the the forefathers of Israel. We have Abraham, we have Isaac, and now Jacob. We see all throughout Scripture, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the forefathers. Uh, They're the the guys who, who, in a sense, started the entire, in a sense, religion of, of Christianity and of Judaism at that time. These are the people that God made a covenant with the forefathers. So that's an important thing to to point out, to remember. Verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other than, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. So the place was originally called Luz. He renames it to be Bethel. Bethel, house of God. Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The reason why I wanted to read this before we jump into chapter 29 and take a look at our text is it's important to point out that our man Jacob here is a real piece of work. He's a real piece of work. Here he is. First of all, deceiving and cheating his brother out of his birthright. We already talked about that. But now, as he's running away because his brother's trying to kill him, because he cheated his brother out of his birthright, he's on the road, running away. And along the way, he has this dream. There's this ladder going up to heaven, and angels are coming up and down on it. And God's standing above this ladder looking down. In heaven, he says, I am the Lord, 
your God, the God of your father Abraham. I promise you, I promise you that I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your descendants great. There's going to be so many, you can't even begin to number them. You're going to go all over the place, spread all over the place. You are going to be a great nation, all your descendants. God makes this promise to him. And so what does Jacob respond with? Jacob wakes up from this dream. God has given him an unconditional promise that he's going to do this. And God says that I'm not going to leave you until I've done what I've promised. Until, until your people are spread all over the place and you're, you have a great nation from your people, I'm never going to leave you. What a great promise from God. And so what does Jacob turn and say? Well, if God will do that, then he'll be my God. Did you catch that? Well, God gave me an unconditional promise, so I'll give him a conditional one. God, if you do X and such and thus for me, then I'll serve you. Here's why I point that out. How many of us do the same thing? Yeah, it's true that we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. But my question for you is, why do you obey God? Is it, if God blesses me, then I'll obey him? If God gives me a really great job and an awesome 401k plan and a white picket fence with a golden retriever and 2.1 kids, then he'll be my God. Is that really how we are as Christians? Examine yourself, family, as we study the person of Jacob. Is that how you are? Is that how I am? Are we the kind of Christians that make conditional, conditional promises in response to God's unconditional promise to us? That shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be the case at all, because if there's anybody that deserves unconditional obedience, it's God. And if there's anybody that deserves conditional promises, it's us. God should be looking down at us saying, if you obey, then I will bless. But instead, God says, I'm going to bless you. And you say, well, God, if you bless, then I'll obey. It not ought to be this way, family. But this is how Jacob is, real piece of work. But it's okay. He may be a piece of work, but much like us, he's just another work in progress. Maybe a piece of work, but he's a piece of work in progress. And so we're going to see what God does in men and women's lives who try to cheat the system and try to negotiate with God and, and try and live their life in a me-first manner rather than a God-first manner. Okay? Chapter 29. Coming off this awesome dream and this awesome promise from God, verse 29, verse 1, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. We'll pause right there. I know we didn't get far, but it's going to be short pause, I promise. Jacob went on his journey. Then Jacob went on his journey. In the original language, in the Hebrew, this phrase 
literally translates to, then he lifted up his feet. I like that because it's like there's a little bit of a spring in Jacob's step coming off this promise from God, coming off this half-hearted commitment to be obedient to God. Here he is, a spring in his step. He's doing great. He's excited. And he lifts up his feet and went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Verse 2, as he looked, he saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. We'll just pause right there. We didn't get far again, but... Jacob takes off from that place and and he's excited because God has now made a promise to him. So he's on his way to Laban's home, the land of his uncle, and he's pretty excited about the fact that he now has God in his pocket, in a sense. God sort of promised him that he's going to bless him and so he's excited because God's going to bless me wherever I go. He promised, he said so. He's got a spring in his step. And remember, not only is he going to his uncle's house to, uh, not only is he looking to get away from his brother Esau, but he's also looking for a wife. Dad sent him off to find a wife. Now, it's important to understand that his dad, Isaac, when he ended up getting married to, uh, to Rebecca. How that happened, I need to backtrack. I forgot to lay the foundation for this. I'm very sorry. But uh, what Abraham did is he sends his servant to go to the land of Ur to go get for his son a wife. And as he's going, the servant is sort of praying, okay, Lord, how am I going to know that this is the one? And so he comes to a well And he decides, if this woman waters my seven camels that I'm traveling with, then this is the one for my master's son, Isaac. And so that's how mom and dad, in a sense, came together. That's how they got married. I know it's a little short description, but I just don't really have time to go all into it. So if you haven't read about it and you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go back and read. But all that is to say... Jacob's on his way. He's looking for a wife and a little spring in his step. He's pretty excited. And in the distance, he sees a well, a well. Hey, I remember I've heard the story so many times of how mom and dad got together. It all had to do with a well. I just want to point out and say that the well is not a good place to go to find your wife or husband. (laughs) But in Old Testament times, the well was a good place to go to look for your wife or husband. (laughs) Sorry. Some of you are feeling awfully convicted, I know. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But Jacob comes up and he sees in the distance a well. So in the back of his mind... Jacob's got two things that he's remembering as he's walking up and he sees this well where the sheep are watered. He's thinking, hey, a well. I remember how mom and dad ended up not necessarily meeting, but how that whole thing went down, that arranged marriage. It all surrounded a well. And God's just promised me prosperity and he's going to be with me and he's going to bless me and he's going to make my my name great and he's going to give me a ton of kids. And in order to have a ton of kids, I need to have a wife. And so, hey, there's the well. 
And so he heads up to the well. And uh, we continue reading in verse 3. And the flocks were gathered there. Or, I'm sorry, I, I cut off the, the first part of verse, or the last part of verse 2. The stone on the well's mouth was large. I don't want to cut that off because it's important. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, these are the shepherds there, verse 4, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. Oh, this is, this is what I was looking for. Laban's from Haran. Okay, praise God. Praise God, there's the well. God's just promised things are great. I've just come to uncle's house. This is amazing. We're from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Verse 7, he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. I love what, what he's doing here. Jacob comes up. He's excited now because he just found out he's finally reached his destination. He's in the land of his uncle Laban. He's going to find a wife. He's at the well. God has just promised me everything is looking good in my life. And he says, how's, how's my uncle? Is he, is he well? Is he alive? Is he still here? Yeah, he's well. In fact, there's his daughter, Rachel, coming to water the sheep. And so Jacob looks over and he sees Rachel coming and he looks at the guys. Hey, um, shouldn't you be like pasturing the sheep somewhere else? Like, go away, leave, alone time, mano y mano, my future wife's coming. I can't pick up on her with all you guys standing here. Get out. Scram. And they say, well, we, we don't. This is how we do things, okay, pal? When everybody, when all the shepherds come together, we move this, the, this stone over the mouth of the well away because it's so heavy that we wait till everybody's here. We all move it together. We all water the sheep and we go on. So basically we have these guys, that they're early to the well. Why? They're sort of first in line to water their sheep, and they're just waiting for Rachel to get there so they can move the stone away from the mouth of the well together. They can water their sheep first, she can water her sheep, and then they just go on about their day. Jacob's looking for a little, not only a little alone time with his future wife, but he's looking for some quality time with his future wife. And for guys, quality time means impressing his future wife. And so what happens is, verse 8, I already read that, verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with their father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Rachel means uh, you lamb. You lamb, which is a little girl lamb. It's like the, the precious little baby pet lamb. And, uh, you know, like it, maybe ladies, I don't know, this might be a stretch, but maybe your dad has, you know, called you a little lamb once sort of thing. That's sort of what Rachel means, like, oh, my little lamb, you know. And so I love the, the play on words here. I don't really think there's anything significant about it, but it basically says the lamb is coming with the lambs. And uh, I just think that's... 
it's interesting, and it tells a lot about Rachel's character, who she was. She was a she was a little lamb. Oh, so sweet. Verse ten. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So this is obviously a massive stone that's covering this well, right? And the shepherd, the other shepherds have gotten there ahead of time. They got there early so they could be first to water their sheep. And they just told Jacob, look, we don't move the stone until we're all here because it's heavy. And it takes all of us in order to move this, this stone covering away. And so Jacob, just filled with emotion, filled with joy about seeing his future wife, and filled with male pride and bravado, goes up and moves the stone by himself, pushes it away. Rachel comes up like, Hey, how's it going? Let me just move this real quick. Pushes the the stone away from the mouth of the well, and you can see all the other guys just standing there like ticked, you know, like this stinking jerk. What does he think he's doing trying to show us all up here? And then he goes, boys, you wait there. Ladies first. Come here, I'm going to water your sheep for you. Remembering, hey, This is sort of how dad and mom did it way back in the day. This is how it went down. I'm going to get my wife like this. So he waters uh, Rachel's sheep for her after he, the man's man, moves this stone away and displays his brute strength. We don't see Rachel's response to this, but... I can imagine it was probably pretty interesting. Either either she was totally swooning or totally sick of this guy. Because you ladies know there's only one of two reactions when a guy just tries to totally impress you. It's either you're so impressed and swept off your feet, or it's like, give me a break. What do you think you're doing? But we don't see her reaction, but I leave it up to you to fill in. Ladies, especially you, you can fill it in with whatever you think her reaction was. But nonetheless, something very interesting happens that I'm sure she didn't expect at all. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. (laughs) Guys, as we're reading this passage of scripture, this is not a good tactic to pick up on a girl. Kiss and cry, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if this means that it was a Bad kiss? No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't mean anything like that at all. Let me explain what's happening here. What's happening here is Jacob is so overwhelmed with joy and emotion at looking at what he truly, genuinely believes is his future wife. He's looking at her. He's so overjoyed and so filled with emotion that he plants a kiss on her and starts crying or aloud, Um, not in the sense that he's like weeping or mourning, but have you ever been so happy and so excited that you cried? That's what's happening with Jacob. And as we know from the interactions between Jacob and Esau, Jacob was the more sentimental of the two of them. He was the soft guy. He was the mama's boy. And here he is so excited and so joyful and so head over heels for Rachel that he he kisses her and weeps aloud. 
This is the first time and the only time, the only time in Scripture that we see a guy kissing a girl who's not his wife or mother. It's the only time that we see it. I don't want to point that out to say that Jacob was necessarily like coming on to her sort of thing in this or that this was a particularly sexual kiss. He's just excited. He's overjoyed. And this is the first and only time we see anyone so excited about someone else, about someone else of the opposite sex, I should say, that he just goes up and kisses her. Again, I'm not pointing out that this is something sexual, that this was like this ridiculous like make-out session between Jacob and Rachel. That's not what I'm saying, and I don't see that in Scripture. I don't think that's what happened. But he's so excited about finally meeting his future wife that he can't help but just kiss her, and he starts weeping aloud, and he's so excited, and he's so overjoyed. And then, (laughs) poor Jacob... Verse 12, and Jacob told Rachel he was his father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. <laughs> Jacob, so excited, kisses her. He's weeping. He's so excited. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I'm, I'm your dad's sister's son, and she's just standing there. Like, what just happened? She freaks out. And books it, runs away. (laughs) Poor Jacob. (laughs) She goes in and she tells her dad everything that happened. Dad, dad, I just got harassed out at the well. (laughs) She explains the story to her dad. And verse 13 As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, my bone, and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. I want to pause right there. Jacob, we've already seen, is a little bit of a trickster, a little bit of a deceiver. But right now, he is just so pumped and excited and joyful. Why? Because, well, he just got the birthright from his dad. He just got promise from God. He just met his future wife. And he is just stoked out of his mind. So he comes to Laban. He tells him everything. Laban comes out. He runs to meet Jacob. In this culture, for an old man to run is extremely obscene. It never happened. Never, never, never happened. It it was extremely disrespectful to yourself as an old man to run in this culture. But he runs out to meet Jacob. I can't help but wonder if the wind at Laban's back was the memory of Abraham's servant, bringing all this gold for his sister. You see, when Rebekah was was taken to marry Isaac, came with a huge dowry from Abraham and Isaac. Lots of gold. I can't help but think back, or I can't help but think that Laban is remembering 
all the gold that that his dad got for his sister, and here comes Jacob, Abraham's grandson, Isaac's son. I'm about to get a bunch of gold. This is going to be awesome. So excited. And as Jacob comes and tells him everything, where's the seven camels? Where's all the gold? Where the gold at? Nothing. Nothing. Nada. Zip nothing. He doesn't have anything. So what does Laban say? (sighs) Well, I can't deny that you're my nephew, so I guess you can stay. Doesn't kick family out, right? You can't kick family out. So he's like, well, surely you're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Yeah, you can stay here. And so he does. Jacob stays. And verse 15, after Jacob had already stayed with Laban a month, Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. We'll pause right there. So we have Laban, who is, frankly, as we're going to find out, just as good, if not better, of a liar and trickster and deceiver than Jacob was. Laban says to Jacob, hey, since, I mean, you're my nephew and everything like that, what, what are you going to work for me for free? Tell me, what, what shall your wages be? What am I going to pay you? And I love the ominous foreshadowing that happens that right after he asks, what shall your wages be? Moses points out that Laban had two daughters. You already know there's going to be problems. What shall your wages be? And Laban had two daughters. Uh Oh, the name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Now Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful in both form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. Let me explain real quick. I'm a little bit scattered tonight. I'm sorry. It's been a long day. But let me explain real quick what it means when it says that Leah had weak eyes. Literally, the, what, it, what it is in Hebrew is that she had soft eyes. Commentators are all over the place about what this means. This could either mean that she was blind Some people say that this means that she was just not attractive in any sense and that it was just like, well, she had soft eyes, you know. That was her one thing that she had going for her. Other people say that this means she had blue eyes. I don't really see any of this in Scripture. I'm just going to be honest. But I wanted to to be up front and tell you all the different possible interpretations of what this could mean uh, based on what all the scholars say. However, the... How I see it in scripture and and um, going along with what some of the scholars that I, I really respect and look up to and what they have to say about it is that this means that she didn't have a fire in her eyes. She had soft eyes or weak eyes and she just really didn't have much of a spirit about her. Rachel was this tenacious, fiery, amazing personality girl. 
And not only that, she was beautiful in both form and appearance. But Leah, she was just along with the flow. Whatever. And here we have Jacob who is, as we can see through scripture, he's this type A, outgoing, possibly artsy kid. And so he's fallen in love, head over heels, fallen in love with Rachel. She was beautiful in both form and appearance. To quote the James Taylor lyric, she was a sweet senorita with a fire in her eyes. Sorry. What came to my head? Transparency, right? Anyway. Anyway. Rachel was beautiful in both form and appearance, and she was everything that Jacob wanted, and he loved her. Understand, this wasn't any sort of lust thing going on. This wasn't just that Jacob was into her because she looked nice. No, no, no. Jacob loved Rachel. He loved her. He genuinely loved her. And he loved her not only for her appearance, but her form or who she was on the inside. She loved her for the fire in her eyes and the spark and zest for life that she had. Leah, she was just there. Doesn't necessarily say that Leah was unattractive. It's just that Jacob wasn't into her. Jacob wasn't into her. It doesn't matter what we think about Leah and Rachel. The only thing that mattered is what Jacob saw. And in Jacob's eyes, Rachel was the most beautiful creature he'd ever seen because of this fire in her eyes. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe not. You will someday. Moving on, though. So we have these two opposed to each other in a sense, as it sort of lets on in the text. Verse 18, though, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And all the ladies say, Just so you know, a typical dowry in this time would have been to serve for two to three years. Two to three years was a typical dowry. If you didn't have money in order to earn your bride, you would serve her father for two to three years. Here, though, Jacob says, I will serve you for seven years. For your daughter, Rachel. Jacob's like, okay. Or Laban, I'm sorry. He's like, all right. Sounds good to me. Double dowry. Seven years of a free servant. Do whatever I say. And yeah, sure. I mean, it's better that I give her to you than to anybody else. So stay with me. So Jacob served Laban for seven years. And I love that Moses points out how true and how genuine Jacob's love for Rachel was. Not only that he would be a slave for seven years just to get her, but they seemed like a few days because of the love he had for her. This is a total Romeo and Juliet moment. I love it. Love it. Not going to lie. In the spirit of transparency, I was just talking about that. 
I love chick flicks. I genuinely do. Uh, guys, don't you dare judge me, all you in the back. I do. I love chick flicks. Um, definitely went with, a few years ago when it was in theaters, went with my mom to see The Notebook, and I cried. Aaron's cracking up. He's loving it. Transparency, right? Honesty, openness. But that's what's going on here. We have the most romantic chick flick in the entire Bible. In the entire Bible. Jacob loves Rachel so much that he would be a slave for seven years. Seven years. And it seemed like but a few days to him because of how much he loved her. Guys, I just want to call us out on this. So often... As guys, and as guys in the culture that we live in, we live in the the McDonald's culture uh, where we want it now, right? We want it right now. Fast food. And uh, hey, Jack in the Box, or no, Burger Burger King will make it how you order it. (laughs) We'll make it how you want it. We live in fast food generation. We want everything fast. We want everything now. And I challenge you, I call us out as guys, These ladies are worth our time, they're worth our work, they're worth our effort, okay? Ladies, listen up. You are worth our time, you're worth our work, and you're worth our effort. Don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for some guy who just wants to get the ring on the finger and get done with the whole thing in three months, okay? (laughs) Doesn't work like that, all right? You deserve to be pursued, you deserve to be worked for, all right? Guys, they deserve it, okay? Jacob loved Rachel so much. And I challenge you, I ask you, how much do you love your girlfriend, your your fiancé? Would you be a slave for seven years for him? Gladly? Willingly? Would it be like a few days because of how much you love her? Because if not, you better get there. You better get there. Because now I just made it obvious to all these ladies and that's what they're going to be looking for. So you're toast. We're all toast anyway. We have to do it now, no matter what. But I do love that. It is sweet. And it does tell of what marital romance and that connection should be. Guys, we should always be going out of our way to do anything for these ladies. Why? Because we genuinely love them. And if you don't genuinely love that lady, you either better learn to love her like that or you better... Get out of that relationship because you're not doing her or yourself any favors. And it's not, in a, it's not in a sense, it's not the biblical model. Guys, if you're to be a, a godly husband, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church, completely self-sacrificing. It's a huge call. Ladies, remember that? In your, in your man... When you're looking for who, who that guy is going to be, all these guys are coming to your door. You better pick the guy that, that is going to be that, going to be that godly husband that loves you like Christ loved the church. He'd do anything for you. Okay? All right, moving on. <laughs> it's like Christian dating 101. Uh, <laughs> Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, then I might go into her, for my time is completed. 
it based on how he says things, it looks like Laban was being a punk and an extortioner and trying to get every little bit out of Jacob that he possibly could. It wasn't, hey, Laban, so I've been putting check marks on the shed and it's been seven years, so whenever you're ready. And it's not, please give me my wife. It's, give me my wife. Give me my wife. It's been seven years. My time is completed. Give me my wife. Laban, we can already see, is going to cause problems. Going to cause problems. Verse 22, so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. Okay, we're going to pause right there again real quick. I forgot to talk about this. In this day and in this culture, a wedding lasted seven days. Seven days. The first day uh, would be uh, the reading of the marriage contract. Both families would come together. There'd be a huge feast. And in that first day, that first night, the husband would throw his cloak or his jacket around his wife, go into his tent, consummate the marriage, and then after that, there would be six more days of feasting. Okay? Make sense? A lot different than our culture where it's like one and done. (laughs) One day. Ladies, I'm so glad that it's only one day in our culture. Because I've, in the last little bit, I've been in a couple of weddings recently and Man, I with all the planning and all the preparation and all the announcements and the colors and the dresses and the seven days, oh my goodness. <laughs> but praise God, it's only one day for us. But here, understand, seven days, all right? Seven days. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her into Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. We'll pause right there. Behold. Oh, this is such a bummer. So, using the cover of night and possibly a little bit too much wine, Laban takes Rachel, we don't know exactly how, and he restrains her. And takes Leah and gives her to Jacob. In the middle of the night, she pretends to be her sister Rachel. They consummate the marriage. There's no turning back at this point. Uh, The two shall become as one flesh. What guys join together, let no man separate. Wakes up and behold, it's Leah. So he wakes up first morning with this beautiful bride that he's worked seven years for. He's so excited to be with her, to wake up next to her, and it's not her. (laughs) He was ticked. We don't know what Jacob said to Leah, but I imagine it would have been pretty interesting. (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) But anyway, moving on. Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Why then have you deceived me? Why then have you deceived me? This word deceived, the same word that's used to describe what Jacob did to Esau. Deceived. Deceived. Laban said, 
It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. It is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. What was Jacob guilty of doing? Cheating his firstborn brother out of his birthright. Jacob at this point has come from being so excited and his head in the clouds and God's ladder is above me and there's commerce going on between heaven and earth for me and God is going to bless me and it's so amazing and I meet my wife and she's awesome. I, I can't wait to be married to her and spend the rest of my life with her. I'm on cloud nine, even though I'm a, a servant for seven years. It was only a couple of days to me because of how much I love Rachel. And now all of a sudden he wakes up and it's Leah. I imagine he was pretty bummed, not only at Leah and Laban, but at God. God, how could you let this happen to me? You, you, you promised me all these great things. I thought commerce was going down, angels coming up and down this ladder between heaven and earth to just orchestrate my life and make everything perfect for me. How could you do this? Christians so often, it's the same thing for us, isn't it? God, how could you let this happen? When so often, family, what happened to us is exactly what we've done to somebody else. I'm not promoting karma. I'm not saying what goes around comes around, but I am saying that biblically, what you sow, you will reap. What you sow, you will reap. And here, Jacob sows deceit, and he reaps deceit. He reaps deceit. Jacob was a me-first kind of guy. I get my way, no matter what I have to do or who I have to manipulate. And so God allows this tragic thing to happen to him. Don't get me wrong, this is nothing short of tragic. This sucks. But God allows this tragic thing to happen to Jacob. Why? So that he could learn how it feels to be cheated. So he could understand what it means to be lied to and to be deceived. So that he wouldn't continue to do the same thing. Yeah, Jacob was a piece of work. But God wasn't done with that work. And he allowed some real problem and some real tragedy to happen in Jacob's life. So that he could teach him and mold him and shape him into being the man that he wanted him to be. Family, when tragedy befalls you from people, I'm not saying that every time it's God trying to teach you a lesson, but I will say this. You can learn a lesson from every situation and every single person. I used to hate reading in school uh, when I was in like fourth grade. I had just come from public school where we didn't really have to read to Harvest Christian School where we had to read a ton, a ton, and I hated reading. And I hated so many of the books that I had to read. And I was talking to my grandma about it, who used to be a librarian. And she told me something, this great piece of wisdom that I have never forgotten. She said, Tyler, 
as only a grandma can, you can learn something from every single book and every single person. Whether it's what to be or what not to be. Whether it's what to do or what not to do. Whether it's what to be like or what not to be like. Family, in every single circumstance that you go through, you can learn something from it. And God does want to teach you something from every single circumstance in your life. I'm not saying that every tragic thing that happens to you is a result of something that you've done in the past. There's no cosmic karma going on. But oftentimes, God uses the things that we've done to other people and turns them around on us so that we can see what we've done to them. Our sin be brought before our eyes so that we can repent from it. Make sense? This is what happens to Jacob. The cheater gets cheated. He gets deceived. He gets lied to. And he hates it. I can't imagine how Jacob must have felt when Laban said to him, we don't do any, we don't give the younger before the firstborn as he flashes back to him cheating his firstborn brother out of his birthright as he gets cheated. Hmm. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Verse 27, complete the week of this one, of Leah, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Laban's like, you're right, I ripped you off, but complete the wedding week of Leah, let the feast happen, be married to her, then I'll give you Rachel, you can marry her, and as long as you serve me for another seven years, another seven years. So in total, we have four dowries for Rachel. That's love. That's love right there. That's love. Ladies, don't look for anything less. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and uh, served Laban another seven years. Now, real quick, we're almost done. We're going to wrap this up, but this is a very important lesson here in this next little piece of scripture. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So let me explain very briefly. Leah got the short end of the stick. Yeah, sure, she got married, but... There's still this animosity between her and her sister because Jacob loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. Jacob loves Rachel more than he loves Leah, and Leah feels hurt and rejected by someone that should love her, by her husband. Right? Are we understanding that? Are we seeing that? So, verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, First, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Reuben means, see, a son. Look, husband, I gave you a son. She names him Reuben because she says, well, now that I have a son, now my husband will love me. Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. 
Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And Simeon means or or sort of sounds like the Hebrew for heard. Look, see, a son, husband, I've given you a son so that you can love me. Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. She conceived again and said, the Lord has heard me and given me another son so that my husband will love me. Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. Verse 34, and again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi means attached. Now my husband will really love me. He'll be attached to me instead of Rachel. He'll love me. Why? Because now I've given him three sons. And Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. Verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased. Judah means praise. Listen to me, family, and especially you ladies. There are times when people who should love you won't. It's going to happen. We are sinful people, and your family, your friends, Possibly your husband or your wife. Possibly your father or your mother. People who are supposed to love you won't. Okay? It's going to happen. It's part of life. And it's tragic. It's sad. It's not right. But it's what it is. Jacob gave Leah a son. She said... This is awesome. Now my husband will love me. He didn't. Second son. Now he'll have to love me. I've given him two sons. He didn't. Now my husband will be attached to me. Finally, he will love me. He didn't. God gives Leah a fourth son. She names him Judah. She says, this time I'll praise the Lord. Listen to me. Those times are going to come where people who are supposed to love you won't. Don't look for acceptance from other people. Don't look for love and identity in other people above everything else. Look for love, for acceptance, for peace, for joy in God. You are so precious to him. A daughter or a son of the king of kings and he loves you dearly. Let him be your dad. Let him be your mother. 
Let him be your husband. And look to him first and foremost for identity, for acceptance, and for unconditional love because he is the one who has it for you. And when those tragedies happen, when sin happens, and people who are supposed to love you don't, look to God because he loves you even though you don't deserve it. Okay? Looking back at our study, we see three things. One is funny and unimportant. The other two are very serious and very important. The first one is, the well is a good place to find your wife or husband. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) One is, biblically, what a relationship and what courting and what pursuing after a woman should look like, guys, and ladies, what it should look like to be pursued after, okay? He should put time, effort, energy, and work in for you, all right? Guys, hear that? Okay. The two other things are this. When you cheat other people, God is eventually going to bring it around that you're going to get cheated. Why? Not karma. He wants you to understand and to learn and to see your sin for what it really is. It's one thing for me to tell you that it's, it's one thing for me to tell a child that it's not nice for him to hit other kids with a wiffle ball bat. But when one of those kids takes the wiffle ball bat from that kid and hits him back, then he knows it's not nice and he won't do it anymore because he didn't like getting hit. Okay? When we, when we sin in different ways, a lot of the times the way that God brings that to our eyes is by allowing that same thing to happen to us. It's not because he hates us. It's not because he doesn't care. And it's not because he's a, a kid with a magnifying glass on an anthill. He's doing it because it's the best way for you to understand and to, to learn and to see your sin for what it really is. Okay? The second thing that I want us to take away from our study is that we shouldn't be looking for our identity in others. We shouldn't be looking for acceptance in other people, okay? And we should not be looking for unconditional love in other people. Look to God. Look to God. Praise and worship him because he loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place so that you can be reconciled to him and could spend eternity with him. Amen? Sorry, I went like five minutes over, but let's pray. King, so often in your word, you demonstrate to us that we're your bride. And so when I read this scripture, and how Jacob served Laban, was a slave for seven years, and it seemed like him but a few days because of the love that he had for Rachel. It reminds me, Jesus, that for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy that was set before you in us, 
being able to be reunited with us, you endured the cross. So that we could be called your, your bride. We're so undeserving of your love because we're so unfaithful to you. But thank you for this picture in your word of your love for us. God, this book of Genesis is, is all about showing us your character through your chosen people. And I'm, I'm so excited and so blessed to see your character of love and joy over us through the story of, of Jacob and Rachel. Please, God, don't let us forget how much you love us. Lord, bless you and keep you. May God cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, family. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.